Hello, and welcome to Show Me History. I'm your host, Amy Blankenship. Today starts the first episode of a three-part series. So many truly horrible things happened in St. Louis in 1849, I just can't cover it all in one episode. 1849 was the year from hell for many St. Louisans. It was a difficult year for citizens and government leaders as they faced the challenges of two major tragedies, a cholera outbreak and a great fire. It also faced a race riot, a slave stampede, and a high-stakes bank robbery. This will be the worst year for the city to date. Today, we're going to discuss the cholera outbreak. But firstly, what is cholera? Cholera is a bacterium affecting the small intestine caused by consuming water or food that's been contaminated with human fecal matter. Lovely, right? It's rarely spread from person to person. Uh, Cholera is mostly transmitted by the consumption of contaminated water, food, or shellfish. Often called the Blue Death because of the grayish-blue hue of its victims, cholera causes severe diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and when left untreated, death. Cholera kills by dehydrating its victims and can do so quickly. In addition to these symptoms, people experience muscle cramps, rapid heart rate, low blood pressure, severe headaches, electrolyte imbalances, seizures, and extreme hydration. An untreated person can produce three to five gallons of diarrhea a day. So with poor hygiene and improper draining systems, this disease can spread rather quickly. The diarrhea caused by cholera is called rice water because it resembles cloudy water with rice floating in it. In reality, it's bodily fluids with pieces of intestinal lining. Today, the disease is treatable and can be prevented. Treatments include IV fluids, oral rehydration, potassium, and zinc supplements, and sometimes a round of strong antibiotics. There are vaccines available for those traveling to cholera-prone areas, and modern-day sewer systems, water purification treatments, and sterilization processes have almost eliminated cholera in most areas of the world. It's mainly still prevalent in developing countries, and it affects about 2.8 million people and causes 95,000 deaths per year. Now that we've had a nice little lesson in bacteriology, and I said diarrhea far more times than I ever wanted to, let's move on to St. Louis and the cholera outbreak of 1849. Cholera had been prevalent in India for centuries. The disease made its way to the rest of the world via trade routes around 1817. The first case in America was documented in 1832 and quickly spread to major cities, including St. Louis. During this outbreak, it is estimated that around 300 people in St. Louis died. So the residents of our city weren't entirely new to this disease when the 1849 outbreak emerged. St. Louis experienced a population explosion in the late 1840s. The German Revolution of 1848 caused thousands of German immigrants to make their way to St. Louis. A potato blight and famine brought many Irish immigrants to the city as well. St. Louis was also a stopping point for many 49ers heading out west to the gold rush. The city had a steady population, about 77,000 people, 
in an area of 4.7 square miles. But this does not include the thousands of people arriving each day via steamboat. These are kind of transient people that would stay in town for a while, get their supplies, and then head out west. At this point, St. Louis was a disgusting mess, to say the least. The city's government had been unable to keep up with the population growth, and there was not enough housing to accommodate the rapidly expanding population. Multiple families were forced to live in a single dwelling, and in some cases, a room. Lower-income residents built dwellings out of any material they could find, often in low-lying areas prone to flooding. Public health was not really concerned of the municipal government at this time. It was a disgusting place to live. Human waste was dumped on the streets or in creeks and ponds. Privies, or outhouses for the country folk, were built right next to wells used for drinking water. Paved streets were a very rare thing. Most streets were dirt that turned to heavy mud during the rain and created pools of water. During dry spells, the dirt would kick up with thick dust. While we're talking about streets, let's talk about the main mode of transportation in 1849. Wagons and carts pulled by horses and oxen. So not only do we have human excrement being thrown into the streets, we also have animal waste. There was no real method of trash disposal in place. Only about a fourth of the city had service to slap carts. These were kind of the predecessors to garbage trucks. They would just kind of come along and pick up piles of garbage and debris throughout the city. Alleyways and vacant lots would become filled with garbage of all kinds. And rainwater from these trash piles would seep into the ground and then into the water supply. Also, people were allowed to keep pigs in the city at this time for a food source. And the pigs would root through these garbage piles and then wallow in the muddy streets. There was a public water supply used by about 25% of the population. It was piped water from the Mississippi River far north of the city. But most residents utilized wells for their water. However, these were not generally dug very deep and were very easily contaminated. And often there was only one well or cistern for an entire neighborhood. There's no sewage or draining systems to carry rainwater or waste away. And any actual sewers at the time consisted of natural sinkholes and caves that diverted water into the river or would become full of debris and waste and trash and sit stagnant, creating giant cesspools of contaminated water throughout the city. There are two more infamous water issues contributing to the sanitation problems. The first is Shoto's Pond. This was a man-made body of water consisting of about 100 acres created by damming Mill Creek. It was once a clean water pond used for recreation and even baptisms. In its conception, Shoto's Pond was seen as a retreat in the countryside, but by 1849, it was a septic tank of factory waste, filled with industrial waste ranging from animal fat from candle factories to blood and offal from slaughterhouses. It became a breeding ground for all types of diseases, and to make matters worse, the poorer immigrants of the city tended to build their slum dwellings around the pond on the land that wasn't being used by the factories. The matter of Shoto's Pond would not be addressed until after the pandemic. The other source of concern and public criticism was located in the northwestern section of the city. 
So today's 10th and Labity Streets. A large polluted lake had formed out of three connecting sinkholes. City engineer Henry Kayser had tried to alleviate the problem by draining the lake from underneath and letting the water run into caves. The idea was a huge failure. Trash and debris blocked the intended draining system, and the sinkholes just couldn't drain all the nasty water that was in them. The stench of the stagnant water was said to be just absolutely horrible. So the citizens dubbed this sinkhole Kaiser's Lake. It even appears on maps as such at this time. Um, and the situation here with Kaiser's Lake would not be remedied until 1851 when the city was able to construct a legitimate sewer line to drain the area. The weather was not helping matters either in 1849. It was unusually rainy and warm, causing flooding and buildup of water in cellars and streets. The rain continued throughout the spring and summer months. The city just didn't have a chance to dry out. There were pools of bacteria growing everywhere. Combine the continuous rain with the St. Louis heat, and you have an oven prime for baking all kinds of nasty things. I think you get the picture. St. Louis was in the revolting state groomed for disease. So in late 1848, there was news of immigrant boats inflicted with cholera reaching the American shores. It affected New Orleans first, and St. Louis knew it was just a matter of time before it reached them. By January 1849, cholera had reached St. Louis with only a few cases that month. The first case had been a German immigrant who just happened to have gorged himself with sauerkraut before falling sick. This caused the city to place an ordinance banning the sale and consumption of vegetables in an attempt to ward off cholera. Now, I'm fairly sure that gluttony via sauerkraut would make anyone sick and not necessarily cause for banning vegetables, but I'm not an expert. So by March, cholera had killed 68 people. The Mississippi River had thawed from its winter ice blocks and riverboat traffic was picking up. In April, 131 deaths were recorded. By May, the city began shutting down. Schools dismissed students, businesses shut their doors, their circuit court adorned, and several orphanages closed because there was no one left to take care of the children. The city was debilitated. Cholera had no discretion in its victim. Class, age, living in a particular area of the city, it didn't matter. It seemed like no one was safe. At this point, I think many of us can relate. I'm very much reminded of the early stages of the, the COVID pandemic. I found a portion of a letter written by Francis Sublet to a friend that sums up how people must have felt at the time. Quote, I was never so unnerved in my life. I cannot tell who will be the next to go. I am so nervous that I imagine myself sick very often when there is little cause for it. End quote. We were all there in 2020, right? I hear you, Mrs. Sublet. Many citizens fled the city during the early stages of the outbreak, including the city council. An estimated 20,000 people left the city to avoid cholera. But if you did run away, where would you go? Every major city at the time had the same problem. Smaller communities in the country weren't a safe option either. At this point, cholera was everywhere. While some had the means to run away, others did not and were forced to stay. And some, like Edward Bates, felt it was their duty to stay and help fellow citizens. 
He wrote in a letter, quote, I dare not go. I am one of the oldest American inhabitants, have a good share of public respect and confidence, and consequently, some influence with the people. I hold it to be a sacred duty that admits of no compromise to stand my ground the ready to do my part in whatever the exigencies of the time may require, end quote. It's probably a good thing Mr. Bates decided to stay because the citizens of St. Louis are going to need his help a little bit later in the year. So no one really knew what caused cholera, let alone how it spread. It was not until later in 1854 that English physician John Snow was able to isolate the bacteria and confirm its source of contamination. So contemporaries at the time believed that many different reasons to be the source. Um, night air, alcoholic beverages, vegetables, bad diet, bad air, vapors, and some thought it to be an attack on the nervous system that affected the bowels. Doctors did what they could with the knowledge they had. They did understand that disease rose and spread from unsanitary conditions, but they did not know exactly how or why. So some of the common cures and treatments were bloodletting, consuming brandy, burning sulfur to clean the air, spreading lime on the streets, herbal salves, avoiding raw vegetables, and staying inside at night. Others were told to limit their water intake. Really? Someone who's dying of hydration, they can't have water? Of course. And then there was the ever-popular doses of morphine, opium, and mercury. They seem to be the cure-alls for everything, right? And I think this one has to be my favorite. I came across one doctor suggested that afflicted patients should place beeswax or corks in their bum to avoid all fluids from exiting the body. Not really sure I want to be there when that uh, breaks way. (laughs) Now, the most logical treatment I came across was issued by Dr. John Sappington. He recommended giving patients an ample amount of a concoction of, quote, red pepper, one teaspoon and one half pint of hot water, and then in this dissolve one tablespoon of salt. Of this, give frequently until relieved, end quote. This really does make sense. So giving an ailing person ample amounts of water with addition of salt to help the body absorb the, the water, it's basically a saline solution like you get in an IV at a hospital. I'm not sure if you realize this, but red peppers contain quite a bit of vitamin C, which promotes healing in the the body. So good for you, Dr. John Sampington. And with the cause and treatment of cholera, many people had different opinions as to why it was happening. Many local religious leaders believed it was a punishment from God comparing St. Louis to Sodom and Gomorrah. At Trinity Lutheran Church in the Sulard area, Reverend C.F. Walther gave a Repentance Day sermon. He urges congregation to pay attention to God's taking of souls during the cholera outbreak and to seek God's grace if they have been spared. Here's a little excerpt from his sermon. Quote, God's wrathful hand by which he strikes apostate Christianity has also stricken us. The darkest tidings of the angry God has stormed the dwellings of the sinful with the vengeful sword of death and has also knocked upon our doors and snatched away from our houses many precious sacrifices by his powerful might. Well then, my precious people, let us not allow God's knocking at the door of our church to be wasted. 
Let us only acknowledge our guilt and take to heart our sorrow over it. But let us also now, even that much more diligently seek God and hold fast to God's grace. End quote. I know it's a little bit fire and brimstone, but I'm used to it. That's what I grew up hearing. So we're good. <laughs> All right. So while we're talking about religion, I want to talk about St. Louis University for just a minute. So go along with me on one of my side tangents here. So in today's St. Xavier Church on the campus of St. Louis University exists a relic from the 1849 cholera epidemic. It's a plain white statue of the Blessed Mother and Child, and it stands in the vestibule of the Lady Chapel. It's in the basement of the college church. It's probably not seen by many, but it has an interesting connection to today's episode. In 1849, the campus of St. Louis University was located at 9th and Washington, close to the America Center today. Then known as St. Louis College, it housed around 200 boarding students, as well as day students who lived in St. Louis and would travel to and from school each day. In May of 1849, Father Pierre Jean Desmet requested that students say prayers each night to ward off the onset of the epidemic. Among the prayers are the Novena of the Sacred Heart. For my non-Catholic listeners, a Novena is a specific prayer that you recite at least once a day over the course of nine days. The prayer can be of your selecting, or in this case, as requested, the prayer of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. The Students' Solidarity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Club Follow the request of Father Desmet. The students gathered around the statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary in St. Xavier's Church and asked for her protection. Should they be saved, they vowed to place a silver crown on the statue's head to commemorate their love for Mary. Students also placed medals of the Immaculate Conception on the gates of the school and doors around campus. The Jesuit priest teaching and running the school quickly became busy serving the communities of St. Louis, day and night caring for the sick, administering last rites, and conducting funerals. They dismissed school in June. They even canceled commencement ceremonies for the year. In September, school resumed. No priest or student at St. Louis College had been afflicted with cholera. This was seen as a miracle, as a sign, as a vow from the Blessed Mother. The student body gathered for a celebration and ceremony to fulfill their vow to Mary. During a celebratory mass in an elaborately decorated chapel, they placed a silver crown on the statue of Mary that they had prayed to many months before. A marble plaque was commissioned telling the history and importance of the statue. Today, the crown and statue have been separated. The crown alternates between being housed at the St. Francis Xavier Church and a museum on the campus of St. Louis University. The statue of the Blessed Mother Mary and Child is in the basement of the chapel church outside the Lady Chapel. The marble plaque is in storage and has been replaced by a bronze plaque telling the significance of the statue to the school. So back to the big picture, the city, what's going on. By mid-June, hundreds of people were dying each day and the citizens began demanding immediate action from the municipal government. It's not like the mayor and the county council had done nothing at this point, but they were rather limited in what they could do 
due to funding and authority. The charter for the city was not created as an independent city, and at the time they required permission from the state for a large number of infrastructure improvements. The Board of Health, very weak in authority, banned consumption of fresh fish and vegetables in an attempt to ward off cholera, and they did advise citizens to clean and disinfect their properties, but they didn't really enforce it. In March, the council proposed to create a new drainage system. While Ruin voted in favor of this plan, no action was taken. The city lacked the funds for any major improvement of this nature, and the council felt that they just couldn't raise taxes in the middle of this cholera epidemic. So the citizens of St. Louis felt as though the government had failed them. They were not provided sanitary living conditions, adequate housing, and now the government had failed to act in a time of crisis. So on June 25th, a group of prominent citizens gathered at the courthouse to vote to voice their concerns. Our resident from earlier, Mr. Edward Bates, presided. The outcome of this meeting created a 12-man committee to create a list of public demands and concerns. The committee paid no attention to political affiliations or positions during the selection. They were mainly young professionals in the city. On the committee were five businessmen, three lawyers, one editor, one writer, one steamboat captain, and one man who simply described himself as a man of means. The demands of the committee were presented to Mayor John Barry and the Board of Aldermen. Basically, the committee said either meet these demands or resign. The aldermen had already fled the city, so the mayor turned his authority over to this committee. Deemed the Committee of Public Health, they were given $50,000 to carry out acts to improve sanitation throughout the city. The committee set to work immediately. Their main goal was to clean up the city and get rid of cholera. They created the post of ward inspector and 140 block inspectors. The men appointed as inspectors would conduct daily patrols throughout the city. They would aid the sick and enforce the committee's sanitation ordinances. They were authorized to obtain medicine and care for the sick and whatever they deemed necessary to improve health conditions. They ordered people to clean up their property and enforce fines when not done. And from this, a volunteer organization developed. Um, young men formed the Sanitation Society that volunteered to help conduct block inspections and help those with cholera. The committee created temporary hospitals throughout the city and hired dragons and wagons to transport the sick. And by quarantining the sick to these temporary hospitals, they shortened the length of the cholera outbreak. They created the first sanitation worker of the city, the city scavenger. Um, their job was to get rid of all the waste and trash on the streets. And the committee developed schedules for weekly trash pickup for residences and businesses. They also supplied clean drinking water to citizens. The city's fire hydrants were opened in an attempt to provide somewhat clean water to everyone. And at night, the committee had people burn fires of wood, coal, tar, and sulfur in heavily affected areas. At the time, they thought the smoke from these fires would clean the air and get rid of bad vapors causing cholera. Obviously, that's probably not the best idea to pollute the air, but whatever. And then Arsenal, Arsenal Island was designated as a checkpoint in quarantine for all incoming steamboats. 
Arsenal Island doesn't exist anymore, but it was basically just a large sandbar just south of downtown of the Mississippi River. And a side note, if you hear reference to a quarantine island, that's a separate island down by Jefferson Barracks south of the city that was used at a completely different point in time. Anyway, so on Arsenal Island, everyone on board every boat went through a thorough health screening before being allowed to offboard and proceed to the city. Those found ill were to remain on the island until they either received a clean bill of health or they passed away. In July, the committee banned the sale of beer and malt beverages to prevent large social gatherings at beer gardens. The German population brought their tradition of beer gardens with them. And since the German immigrant population was one of the more afflicted demographics, the committee banned their gatherings. They even stopped omnibuses from operating on Saturday afternoons to keep the citizens at home. By August, the worst of the outbreak was over and the city began to return to normal. Schools opened and the government reconvened. With the worst of the outbreak passed, the Committee of Public Health disbanded and returned powers to the municipal government. At dismantle, the committee returned $16,000 to the city. They also supplied the mayor with a list of suggestions to continue improving the city, including creating a sewer system, paving streets, and they stress that public health is the responsibility of the government. But the Committee of Health, or Public Health, was not the only group to provide assistance during the outbreak. The local churches came to the aid of many. So the hospitals at this time were very primitive. You were lucky if you had a straw mattress on the floor and there's only one or two doctors on staff, and nurses were not necessarily medically trained. They were just volunteer women from the ward who would help out throughout the day. And at nighttime, there was just a watchman on duty, no doctors or nurses. But all this changed during the outbreak. Nuns and volunteers began caring for patients. Bishop Kendrick stayed in St. Louis and visited hospitals every day, the Sisters of St. Joseph's and Soulard closed its school doors and began caring for the sick in the area. And the Sisters of Charity came to St. Louis to help priests with the duty of caring for the sick. They ended up taking over an orphanage that had grown from 70 to 150 children in a matter of months. The Archdiocese established the German St. Vincent Orphan Society to ease the population of the city's orphanages. By the end of August, one out of every 10 citizens had perished from cholera. It's difficult to give an exact number of deaths. Um, a lot of deaths just weren't recorded. It happened very quickly. Um, if you were too poor to afford a funeral service and an actual burial, you were just put into a mass grave with other people. Um, the churches couldn't keep up with the death records. And then the people who left the city and then perished were certainly not accounted for. So most of the numbers I've seen during my research have ranged from 4,500 to 6,000 people. Um, and in the end, some areas of the city were afflicted far worse than others. The hardest hit population were those that couldn't care for themselves or seek medical attention. This included the elderly, slum dwellers, and foreign-born citizens. Three-fourths of those who perished were immigrants, mostly of German and Irish descent. 
The first and second wards on the south side of this city contained almost all immigrants. It had the worst living conditions, mainly overcrowded tenement buildings. As well water being the only source of water, cholera spread rather quickly, and the death rate in this area was 62%. One of the worst affected areas was a three-block area in the southwest section of the city in the third ward. It became known as Shepherd's Graveyard. Two-thirds of the population perished. This was the filthiest and least hygienic place in the city, located between 9th and 10th Streets in Market and Walnut. It was near the drainage of Shoto's Pond. The area consisted of very poor immigrants living in, basically, shacks. One of the main culprits of cholera spreading in this area was the housing, as buildings were vacated due to deaths of its occupants. New families or groups of people would move in, and hygiene not being the same standards of today, lack of cleanliness caused cholera to infect the new group of people in the building. This became such an issue that one of the block inspectors from the Committee of Public Health was assigned to specifically guard vacant buildings until it could be disinfected, and in some cases, they just burnt the buildings down altogether to prevent people from moving in. Oddly enough, the remaining portion of the third and fourth ward had the lowest death rate in the city. These wards were basically centered in what we know now as downtown, or a little north or just a little south on either side. This area's population was mainly wealthy American-born citizens that had the means to flee the city at the beginning of the outbreak. Those remaining had the better water supply than the rest of the city and they were fortunate enough to have their water piped in from the Mississippi, north of the city. The fifth and sixth wards of the city, located on the north side, held mainly German and Irish immigrants, and these areas were less densely populated and only had a 16-ish percent death rate. The plethora of people dying during the cholera outbreak stretched the city's ability to properly bury the dead. City cemeteries were becoming full and had no more room for expansion. Many believe that the cemeteries so close to living quarters posed a public health hazard. Also, an ordinance banned the creation of any new cemeteries within the city. In a rather Monty Python fashion, carts would go around town picking up bodies of the deceased each night. And the bodies were often piled onto the docks until burial arrangements could be made. One new cemetery, at that time outside the city limits, bore the responsibility of interring cholera victims, Calvary Cemetery. The land of Calvary Cemetery was owned and administered by the Archdiocese of St. Louis. In 1853, Archbishop Kendrick purchased land from Senator Henry Clay. It was known as Old Archard Farm and was located several miles northwest of the city. Archbishop Kendrick set aside 323 acres for a cemetery and kept the western half to himself, including the former Clay Mansion. Many victims of cholera were buried at the cemetery. Although the grounds of Bell Fountain Cemetery were not available for burial at the time, the cholera outbreak did spur the creation of the cemetery. In March of 1849, a group of St. Louis's most prominent citizens founded the Rural Cemetery Association of St. Louis. Their goal was to establish a new cemetery outside the city limits. The association purchased land from the Hipstick Hempstead family. Over the next year, 138 acres would be re-landscaped and transformed into Bell Fountain Cemetery. 
although the first burial was not until 1850, one could say the cholera outbreak led to the creation of Bell Fountain Cemetery. The cholera outbreak of 1849 forced the city's leaders to come to some pretty harsh realizations. They needed to face and solve serious problems if they were going to become an urban center of commerce and be able to support and assist its citizens. The cholera outbreak of 1849 began an era of building proper hospitals, the creation of charitable institutions. It caused the citizens of St. Louis to appreciate utilities such as sewers and safe water supply and the taxes to support them. Although not immediate, this plague caused some significant changes. The adoption of new public health policies, the construction of the first sewer main, the city began to provide a better distribution of safe drinking water Weekly garbage pickups for all areas of the cities was instituted, and the eventual organization of a formal police and fire department and board of health were established. Thank you for joining me today. Next time, we'll talk about the Great Fire of 1849 and its devastating effects on the city. Until then, I'll see you in the loop.